Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week, we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 18 with Joseph Bievenu and Joseph Makos. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? Some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. So, this is the inaugural episode of a new kind of episode that we're going to try out today, where we're going to put some poets out there that we think not everyone's necessarily heard of, and we're going to each talk about two poets that we like and read some poems by them, and then we're going to have a guest do the same, and hopefully it'll be... There'll be something in there you haven't heard of, and you'll have something new to go read. Absolutely. It's early today, everybody. We're recording uh, in the St. Claude studio and just chugging down our coffees and getting going. So what I'm going to tell you about today is this little curious book, and I'm going to talk about two, two poets and focus on two. You know, even when I bring it up to people who, are, who know this, er, this, this genre, this area, time, time period of poetry, sometimes turn their heads and say, the what? The Cubist Poets of Paris? What does that mean? Uh, there's, this, there's this pretty cool book that Nebraska put out, and it's called uh, The Cuban Poets of Paris. Uh, Cubist poets. Cubist. The Cuban. <laughs> Cubist. <laughs> uh, the little inscription in the opening says, One can only marvel at the instinct of Parisian painters to keep their art in the hands of poets. Which I found was interesting uh, because it talks about this interaction between the painters and the poets at the time. But in this anthology, we have all, all of our, our common known sort of people in the canon. Yeah, yeah. Guillaume Polonier, and we have uh, Blaise Sandrars, and we have uh, Albert Barreau, and we have a few other people. But there's a few names in here that come out that I've never heard of, and the work is fantastic. And the one thing I want to bring up is like, well, maybe maybe I could put, we could put a couple an image in the notes or something of the show. Is that there's this fantastic visual poets that are going on? Oh yeah, in yeah. this time period that just like seems like it's just untouched content, and I think. Uh, when reading this book, it seemed like what they had to do to pull this together is they had to go into the magazines at the time and pull the poems out of the magazines. Yeah, because that was the only place you could Because that's where they were being published. Yeah. And, and uh, a reason why a lot of this work didn't survive in like thick, like more bound tomes from the era is because they didn't publish their work in tomes. They published yeah. their work in these beautiful handmade chapbooks. Yeah. And that was their thing because it was very artistically inclined with... With uh, with the poetry and the painting at the time and the arts and cr- the, the sort of like artistic movement, the one guy did a series of broadsides that mm-hmm. toge- together they were the height of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> That's pretty so, cool. so all together, like the measurements of the broadsides were the same height as the Eiffel Tower. I thought it was kind of neat. You know, it's like working with um, they were working with like Picasso and they were working with all, the, all these painters at the time. But the one that I liked the most, and I think this is the guy actually that did the broadsides, but uh. This 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 guy by the name of Vicente Huidobro. Uh, he's Chilean, actually. But I'm going to read a little bit. It's just a quick little couple paragraphs here about his life and how he ended up in this sort of circle of uh, Cubist poets in Paris. Born in Santiago de Chile into an old Spanish family in 1893, Vicente Huidobro received an education that looked to Europe, especially Spain and France. He arrived in Paris at the end of 1916 and, while still a student, allied himself with the Cubists. With Reverdy, Huidobro helped to found the review Nord Sud. Although only four years Huidobro's senior, Reverdy acted as his mentor, translating his work and guiding him toward the Cubist style. Indeed, it is times difficult to distinguish between the two. They were kindred souls, and it is a pity that their squabbles over the authorship of their theories. They loved. Uh, they both loved to theorize. It generated so much bitterness. Let's hope that doesn't happen to us, Bianca. Hidobro contributed to a dozen pieces of Nord Sud, several of which he included in his first French language volume, Horizons Carré, Square Horizons, in 1917. Excerpts for Tower Eiffel, the poems above, are taken from this volume. After the publication of his final work in French, Hidobro returned to South America, where he was known at the time of his death as one of the major Latin American poets of the 20th century. His Cubist phase did not count for naught toward this. So that's cool. So it's like this different type of character who is, I guess, Chilean by 
uh, birth by and, birth, yeah, and then comes to to comes to France and then drops himself right into the right scene. It sounds like right scene at the right time. But that's crazy to me. So you so if I understood that correctly, so he founded Nord Sud with Pierre Reverdy, yeah. but I've never heard of him. I know, right? That's crazy. <laughs> but I think maybe did he write in French or did he write in Spanish? Do you know? He wrote in French. He wrote in French. Okay. Yeah, he wrote in French. Huh. All right, let's hear some of his poems. Yeah, absolutely. Let's see here. He's got a little couple here. I'll read a couple. Well, I'll read Morning, and then I'll read The, the Tower Eiffel poem, I think. It's surrounded by sun all, all, along, all along the piece. It says sun, 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 sun. So it's like this concrete kind of like frame. Element, yeah. Just like a concrete element. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Yeah, because yeah. it's almost like a printer's mark. Yeah. Okay. Morning. Sun that awakens Paris... The highest popular on the bank, on the Eiffel Tower, a tricolored cock sings to the flapping of his wings and several feathers fall as it resumes its course. The Seine looks between the bridges for her old root, and the obelisk that has forgotten the Egyptian words has not blossomed this year. Sun. Eiffel Tower to Robert Delaunay. Eiffel Tower, guitar of the sky, your wireless telegraphy attracts words at a rose bush, the bees, during the night, the same no longer flows, telescope or bugle. Eiffel Tower and its hive of words, or an inkwell of honey at the bottom of dawn, a spider with barbed wire legs, was making its web of clouds, my little boy. To climb the Eiffel Tower, you climb on a song. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. We are up on top. A bird sings in the telegraph antennae. It's the wind of Europe, the electric wind over there. The hats fly away. They have wings, but they don't sing. Jacqueline, daughter of France, what do you see up there? The Seine is asleep under the shadows of its bridges. I see the earth turning and I blow my bugle. Toward all the seas on the path of your perfume, all the bees and the words go their way. On the four horizons, who has not heard this song? I am the queen of the dawn of the poles. I am the compass of the rose and the wind that fades every fall. And all full of snow, I die from the death of that rose. In my head, a bird sings all year long. That's the way the tower spoke to me one day. Eiffel Tower, Avery of the world. Sing, sing, chimes of Paris. The giant hanging in the midst of the void is the poster of France. The day of victory, you will tell it to the stars. Yeah, I like that. I like that second one a lot. Yeah. That's, it's very, it's it's interesting. I mean, I guess it makes sense. Eiffel Tower is probably the perfect subject for someone in France in the Cubist movement, right? It's got that perfect element of all the national elements, but still being this totally modern thing and figure it, it allows them to tie a lot of those things together. But yeah, that's great. Guitar of the sky. That's yeah, wonderful. Guitar of the sky. And then like your, <laughs> your wireless telegraphy attracts words as a rose bush, the bees, like what a modern, like super modern sentiment. Yeah. Well, they called, okay. So, so the term, radios, wireless, the term radios. wireless. Yeah. 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 You got yeah, it. You yeah, got, yeah. You got it. But that, that's, that's interesting because, a lot of people don't know that, and I was I was actually just looking up the etymology of the word radio. Uh-huh. I, didn't, I didn't know what it was actually, and apparently in Europe, the guy who discovered uh, it was called like uh, wire wireless. It was like radio radio telegraphy, but but the word wireless was uh, the the European term for radio. Yeah, and and then but but it never caught on in America. The word radio stayed. Well, I think part of it was because there was. So many people that kind of came up with that technology around the same time. There was all there was a lot of like fighting of who gets credit for it, and but there was also fighting of who had patents to various things. I yeah. think that were different in America than in Europe. Than right. in Europe, but uh, yeah, no, yeah, that is funny. But it makes sense, right? I guess it sounds funny to us because like it's got a wire, you plug it into the wall. But it it's but the it's the broadcasting is wireless, totally. so that makes sense, right? Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's yeah. The term <laughs> wireless in general is funny because it kind of came back into and came back into like modern culture like about fifteen twenty years ago. Yeah. It like wasn't really there until, yeah. until then. You know, go wireless or like wireless. It's just like it's the it's the same term that's been used the whole time. But anyways, yeah. No, those that those nice, and I've never heard I've never heard that poem before. Yeah. Oh, it's really cool. I mean, this guy's work is, is it has these like little visual elements to it. It's like a little bit of projected verse. It's like on the page, it 
plays around with uh, spacing. And I'm gonna have to look it up. I wonder if anyone is has published a collection. fuller collection of his or something, or at least, or if he's in in other anthologies where there's more work. I wonder. I bet he would be. I bet he would be. Yeah, I want to. So I want to tackle another another poet. Okay, another there. Cubist poet. And I'm gonna do a lady, uh, a female poet. Again. Good. I'm glad you caught yourself on that. Yeah. No, <laughs> so. I guess I'll do the Baroness because it's oh, yeah. a different Baroness, yeah. not different. Baroness. Oh, not who I'm no, not who I'm thinking of. No, okay. different Baroness, Helene. I think it's Oentogen. I'm pretty sure it's like the apostrophe O E. Man, that looks like a hard one to say. Yeah, I'm gonna spell it. It's Helene, definitely Helene, and it's D apostrophe O E T T I N G E N. Dotejan, maybe or something. I don't know. I'm guessing. I'm my French pronunciation is not good. I'm gonna. I guess. I want to read. I want to read a poem first, and then I'll, I'll talk about. And then it. talk about and it. And then come bit. back and okay. read a poem at the end. Yeah, yeah. This one's this one's called Kilimanjaro. The volcano rumbles alone. The spirit flutters under the shower of the gale. The refuge of lost travelers. The summit of the mountain trembles like a forsaken poplar. It is not the Alps or the Pyrenees. Those names so gentle. A flock of shepherds. At times, a guide with a dead body. Neither guide nor shepherds. An unknown force is calling me. Perhaps the voice of the star perched on the last height. Perhaps the desire to see the spaces that, that conceal Europe. What a mirror. Neither profile nor p- place. The color caved in before reaching it. My breath is changing into a flood of curdled blood. My lips stop murmuring a prayer. Night falls all without filling the din. My watch sings like a bee shut up in the glass. It is to be death, I beg. The one who finds me to take my passport and the photograph and this lock of hair, which makes its final effort to warn me to address all that to 229 Boulevard Respail in Paris. <laughs> I like how it ends. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, it does. And it, it does sound kind of nice. So I'm going to read a little bit from this, um, from the uh, check here. I don't have to read the whole thing, but uh, it's uh, I'll get up to a point where she's, she's a contributor to North Sioux too. So this is this thing. It's like, well, you we know, go such a huge magazine, yeah. But yeah, yeah, we go back to like those magazines, and it's and you like can find some of these pieces, even by some people of these pieces, who, yeah, these people who were, yeah. who were part of the scene, but were lesser players. One of the main headquarters of Montparnasse during the struggle for Cubism was Two Twenty Nine Boulevard Respail. The struggle for Cubism. That's what it All says. right, okay. <laughs> home of the Baroness, home of the Baroness, and her brother and painter Serge, even crazier of a name to pronounce, <laughs> Jess Redzoff Ferrat. The Baroness has often been described as an eccentric. Gertrude Stein called her not uninteresting. Max Jacob is one of the few to give a detailed description of the Baroness in her home. Here's the excerpt. On important occasions, one would go up in the morning on the brand new elevator to the modern style seventh floor of 229 Boulevard Respail. From the height of her high heels, which lengthen her lengthy graciousness, she would greet you with unsubdued compassion, still walking to and fro in the paneled greenhouse next to the studio with her arms crossed on a pair of yellow moray pajamas. For Max Jacob, everything about the Baroness was profusion and largesse. From tea, she would always save the roast beef sandwiches for the more poverty-stricken artists. She gave Russian lessons to Picasso at the time he was contorting Olga. (laughs) Above all, it was this generosity that allowed a Polonier to revitalize one of his one of his pieces under the name. Oh, she had it. Okay, so there's a pseudonym, Jean Carus. Uh, the Baroness and her brother managed the affairs of the review and it, uh, kept it afloat financially until the First World War f- uh, forced it to close down. She was a prolific writer, one of the few contribute to both Sikh and Nordsud, as well as uh, Les Soirées. She wrote novels and prose essays under the pseudonym Roque Gray, R-O-C-H-G-R-E-Y. The poetry in poetry under the name Leonard Pugh, P-I-E-U-X. And she painted under the name Francois Anguibault, which is okay. So this is a crazy woman. She's like a baroness. Well, like funding the, but you, but yeah, but I mean, I think it's, she had to have male pseudonyms, right? Yeah. Um, cause otherwise, I mean, I think that it was very hard to publish in France at that time. If you were, if you were female. I understandable. So yeah. the Baroness and her brother were the first to recognize Rousseau among the paintings they, they bought, nice. uh, is the large self portrait that hangs above the portraits of the Baroness Picasso, Ferrat, 
uh, Servage in a, in a sketch by Di Chirico. The lyric poetry has certain Cubist traits. So, I mean, the Baroness collaborated with uh, all sorts of Cubist painters and to produce woodcuts, 13 of them, a series of handwritten verses beginning on the title page with the, with the words, okay, grant me an audience and I shall recite to you the verse of an unknown poet. Hmm. That's funny because that's what we're talking about. Right? Yeah, yeah. Poets, unknown poets. Uh, in the illustrations against a background of rectangular buildings, a favorite motif of Sauvage's. Particularly striking is the tall perpendicular word perpendicular, which imitates its meaning in much the same way as Mallarmé uh, does in an uh, afternoon. Of All right, I don't know if we need the author's uh, literary criticism here. Do we have any more about her life in there? Yeah, yeah you can cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just kind of scrolling yeah, through I, I, I yeah, thought yeah, there was more, yeah. more about the life. Let's see here. That might have been okay. it. Okay, so so in any case, the potent painter, yeah, became more uh, into the work of the, the interaction between the woodcuts and the, and the poetry, and which is which is pretty cool. Let's see here. It was like yeah, it seems like she was involved in all kinds of aspects of that scene. She was painting too, as well as as writing poetry. Yeah, uh, she's a huge fan of Rimbaud, a huge fan of Apollinaire, and and just you know, I mean, she seems and she just didn't she didn't die till nineteen fifty, which is like significant. She's she's lived for till into the modern era. But I think what, what's interesting here is we have these characters aside, uh, you know, we have these characters that are kind of like these minor figures in the in the in the canon of certain things, like this time period in Paris where we know a few of the poets around her. Yeah. But like, we don't even know. We don't even know uh, what her real impact was. I mean, we it seems as though she was like the Gertrude Stein maybe of that scene. Or well, something like yeah. That. You know, well, like, I mean, I don't know, but I think it's funny. Like you were saying, I think a lot of those people in those scenes were publishing and were really important to each other because they kind of had these sort of insular groups, but not all of them do we necessarily remember. And it more just has to do with the vagaries of publishing. And I think especially for the female poets, you know, that's why we, we never hear from them because they didn't get to publish in the same way. So things didn't survive in the same way, right? If all you did was publish in these magazines and no one ever picked it up later and republished it, people don't remember it, right? Because Which is those magazines, you're right. And a lot of that stuff, the, the thing that's cool about this book is that somebody took the time to go back in and, and edit this yeah. and, and, tr- and translate it because, because how much of that work was even translated in its time in English anyway, because they were publishing in these like super avant-garde journals. But yeah, a lot of that stuff would have never left Paris. No, most of that stuff didn't get published in English till later. Even the big people of those movements, it was, you know, you're, it, it wasn't until quite a bit later that most of it got translated into English. But yeah, okay, that's cool, that's interesting. Did you want to read one more of her poems? Outcries. This apotheosis crushes me. Never was this word less related to happiness. Am I the guardian of the stars on the edge of a frightful danger? Imaginary shepherd lost in a vast forest? The gods are made of marble. Deep inside a museum, a quadruple monster beckons me to approach a tapeworm comes out of an old jar. The air is blue, the sails quiver, and the glorious sea, wretched Tantalus, invites me on a voyage. A bouquet yellow like remorse hurts my eye. The cage, the wheel, the vile ennui of all mankind. And no one, no one to break my chains. <laughs> So there you All go. right, so that was so okay. Two poets. Let's remind heard. remind the names of the two poems again. Yep, the two poets. Vincente Hidobro. Yep, and Vincente, Vincente Hidobro, and Helene, uh, Dantigen or something. Yeah, I don't know whatever Dantigen. her name is. Okay, well we'll put the we'll put those we'll up. put those links and I can take. You. I don't know. We might have to just put a link to the book. I don't know if I'm going to be able to find links to these particular authors, but maybe we'll see. No, I can. I can. Snap yeah, them. yeah. I can snap a couple photos here. Yeah. So yeah, some French Cubist stuff. I don't know. I, I I was talking to someone from France, and they're like the Cubist poets. I've never heard of that. But what's funny is that it's because it's because we it's because. This person grouped this into a scene and a time. Well, yeah. But and a lot of those like, people get put, some of them get kind of lumped in with the symbolists. Some of them get lumped in with surrealism. Yeah. It just, it, because it kind of straddles both of those things sure. in a way, you know, it's kind of like, okay. But these were like um, specifically, these poets here were specifically the ones sort of wrapped around the painting, the painter scene. Yeah. The painters and the poets were very interactive at that time. And well, and we think of. That's why, that's why, that's why. Picasso starts putting words into his paintings was because of this yeah. relationships. Yeah, well, I mean, I think 
that's a funny. I mean, Cubism is painting is kind of it's the vanguard. It's the vanguard of that avant-garde art movement, right? If it happened before, most of it didn't lead to a lot of it. So sometimes it's even tricky with painters. Are they Cubists or do they fall in with some of the later stuff, or do they? And I think the same thing happens with writers too. Like, what end of it do you fall in with, right? You're kind of it's a kind of a transitional movement in a lot of ways. But those are cool. Those are interesting poems there. All right, so our guest today for our Six Poets You May Not Have Heard Of episode is David Rowe. How are you doing today, David? Hi, Joseph. Hi. (laughs) And uh, I don't know, he's got two poets he's going to tell us about. I'm going to kick off with Jack Gilbert. Uh, Jack died about five years ago, I think. I don't remember. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah, Yeah, it it seems more recent, but about five years he passed. Um, He's from Pittsburgh originally. He won the Yale Younger Poets back in the day and then didn't put out a book for, I think, 20 years after that. He uh, turned his back on success. Um, You know, he had been in, like, Vogue and Glamour magazine. He was kind of a dashing character, ladies' man. And, um, yeah, he just turned his back on it all and... um, Went to places like a Greek island and Japan <laughs> and all this. And um, put out very little in his long life. Um, and I respect that very much. Yeah, yeah. I, I do. I do. I think most poets just publish too damn much. No, I agree with that. Uh-huh. <laughs> so um, I guess we can start with one, maybe talk about him a little more. Yeah. Let's see. This one's called Failing and Flying. Everyone forgets that Icarus also flew. It's the same when love comes to an end, or the marriage fails and people say they knew it was a mistake, that everybody said it would never work, that she was old enough to know better. But anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Like being there by that summer ocean on the other side of the island while love was fading out of her. The stars burning so extravagantly those nights that anyone could tell you they would never last. Every morning she was asleep in my bed like a visitation. The gentleness in her like antelope standing in the dawn mist. Each afternoon I watched her coming back through the hot, stony field after swimming. The sea light behind her and the huge sky on the other side of that. Listen to her while we ate lunch. How can they say the marriage failed? Like the people who come back from Provence when it was Provence and said it was pretty, but the food was greasy. I believe Icarus was not failing as he fell, but just coming to the end of his triumph. Oh, yeah. Never loses its luster, huh, that one? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Just the imagery, huh? Uh, well, the thing that I like about Jack Gilbert, yeah, the imagery is great, but it's kind of pared down. There's only so many images, and in, in, well, most of the time in his poems, there's only you know a few images here and there. But right. but he ties them all together that they they kind of gleam against the black background or something. Right, and I think you know a lot of that is the way he wrote. Do you remember like he would just do little lines here and there on scrap ends and envelopes and yeah, and just piece them together, you know, like a quilt. Yeah, real hard scrabble, you know, like earning every word of every line. No rush, you know. (laughs) And we got another one here, let's see. This one's Trouble. That is what the Odyssey means. Love can leave you nowhere in New Mexico raising peacocks for the rest of your life. 
The seriously happy heart is a problem. Not the easy excitement, but summer in the Mediterranean mixed with the rain and bitter cold of February on the Riviera, everything on fire in the violent winds. The pregnant heart is driven to hopes that are the wrong size for this world. <laughs> Love is always disturbing in the heavenly kingdom. Eden cannot manage so much ambition. The kids ran from all over the piazza, yelling and pointing and jeering at the young Saint Chrysostom, standing dazed in the church doorway with the shining around his mouth where the Madonna had kissed him. Oh, that's quite an ending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I love how, you know, the chrysosome, you know, would be like golden mouth, you know, and that's because he was so eloquent. Um, uh, but of course it has to do with divine inspiration, you know, this like, this heavenly handicap we have when we write. And um, speaking of handicaps, the, the second poet is a, a proudly dyslexic punk of a poet named Billy Childish. Uh, he's still alive, huh? Yeah. He's born in 59. And he's, he's gotten some celebrity lately but largely unknown still here in the States. You can think of him as the British Bukowski. And yeah, he's, he's dyslexic. Mm -hmm. and he lets it stand as is, you know. So that's, that's what we're saying about a heavenly handicap. And he, you know, he's, he's maybe best known as uh, either a visual artist or uh, a rock and roller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So I dis I discovered his poetry first. I think I was up in Toronto and I just happened upon it. I don't think he has a, an American publisher to this day. Oh, really? I don't no, think I never. So. No. Um No, I don't think so. And I actually we're going to be hearing a poem from Dorado which uh, was put out by Verna Press a few years ago, Peter Anderson and Verna Press. And um, I, was, I was a contributing editor, I think, for issue two here. You're, you're in here, Joseph? Yeah, yeah. But you weren't maybe a, an editor for issue two? I'm no. Not sure how I, was, I was just a, a contributor. <laughs> but we did. I, I remember... Um, it's it's a beautiful you know letterpress. Oh yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's it is I'm very proud. bright red cover. Right, and we beautiful uh, paper. We had a handful of poets. We devoted you know like little albums to each, like five and six poems by each. Um, and Billy Childish was nice enough to contribute. I remember. Um, so you you reached out to him to get yeah, him to contribute. It wasn't, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. He um, he has like no you know internet presence, <laughs> right? And um, I think how it went. Well, I mean, I was I was determined, and I wrote him care of a gallery. Oh wow! Okay, um, <laughs> I'm gonna say in London, but I'm not sure. All these years later, but um, yeah, I wrote him care of a gallery that shows his work. And by God, he got back to us, um, and he overwhelmed us with stuff. I think Peter at one point had to tell him, <laughs> stop sending yeah, poems. You know, and, and visual art. Oh wow! Yeah, well, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So he's he's incredibly prolific. You know, I don't know countless albums, countless books of poems and prose. I've actually never read his prose. Um, but I'm sure, I'm sure it's, it's fine. Um, and yeah, and painting and, and yeah, yeah. cuts. Uh, yeah. So he's, he's just amazing. He's just amazing. And his, his, they're putting out a collected, um, and I'm on the waiting list, uh, a, a British press is putting out his collected. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's good. Um, is it hard to find uh, the smaller collections of his? Or are they pretty difficult to come by? Or? 
Um, well, it depends what you mean by hard. I, I mean, you know, of course, the rare book dealers and all. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would I would say it's still pretty hard. He, you know, he just he um, he had a book burning recently. The the first edition of, of his new collective, they imitated the old um, D.H. Lawrence. I don't know if it was a collected D.H. Lawrence for Penguin, like mm-hmm. UK Penguin. And he, he uh, imitated it, you know, and he heard from he heard from Penguin. They said cease and desist. So, really? Yeah, he burned them all. And there's a really just the cover that was the problem. Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it it was you know exact. Yeah, it was exact. Like yeah, Billy Childish instead of D. <laughs> so um, this this new one that's coming out, you know, um, I forget. It's Tangerine Press. If that helps you any, and I can't I can't wait to get my hands on it. So let me let me read. Yeah, let's read a let's Childish see. poem here. Suffer the fuck. My mom said, there's no letters for you and no one's rang. Nothing could hold my head. I thought, Christ, what about that girl? The man who liked my poems, my friend in Holland. Suffer the fuck. No nothing. I thought I knew what I wanted. I thought it was a lot of fun. There's ants in my typewriter. I didn't recognize anything. I ain't afraid of shock. I need it. I got my head stuck in the dustbin and some daddies banging the sides with lead. Just suffer the fuck. Lie back and suffer the fuck. (laughs) So, I mean, I I love, uh, I ain't afraid of shock. I need it. That really speaks to me, you know. Um, he he is shocking. How well do you know Billy Child? Not very well. Not very I mean, yeah, well. No. yeah. I mean, this this book uh, is one of my prized possessions. Yeah, yeah. This is the cover with uh, it's a self portrait, you know, photograph him in bed with that's Tracy Emin, who's gone on to like big things, you know, as a, a visual artist. And they had, of course, a, a bad falling out. But both both Gilbert and Childish, you know, write a lot about women. Yeah. You know, and uh, that's probably the, the thing I write most about. And I just I just admire, like, you know, no apologies. Yeah. He's, he's a, he, they're both real mavericks, you know. Yeah, Gilbert yeah. Gilbert and, and Childish. Um, and it's just so refreshing, you know, these days. I, I think we're in bad need of, you know, uh, iconoclasts like that, you know. And to be iconoclastic without necessarily being avant-garde or clever, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's it's Just probably more story. difficult now to do that, but yeah. Yep, yeah, yep, yep. So that's, that's what I try to do, too. And now here I'll read you this last one. From, from, from the Dorado. From Dorado. It was also the last one in his little section. And that was, of course, no mistake. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was like a, a bit of a, a throwing down of the gauntlet to end <laughs> the first section with this. I always knew I would win. Never a moment's doubt, even in loss and unhappiness amongst the pressing crowds, my heart kicking in the breeze like God's golden flag. In hated, twisted with toothache, nine years old beneath an adult's hand and drowning bubbles bursting out of me. So birds would fly down to kiss my child's lips with their corn-tasting beaks. Knowing that winning wasn't winning, sure that the race was false, smiling bashfully, the winning tape already draped round my slim shoulders, all laurels bankrupt. So yeah, and uh, yeah, those are two of the finest Lesser-known poets, I know. 
Well, I'm going to move since since you just did Billy Childish and it's a similar thing. I'm going to move to a poet that also I think is more known for his visual art than his poetry. Um, he he mostly does collages, uh, but I mean he paints on top of the collages. But he's I think really more well known for that than the poetry that he writes. And this is uh, Bernard Vador, who is a French poet. I went to his website to see what information I could get, and he had this kind of funny, really short little bio. Born in 1940, after classical and university studies, spent several years in the Far East, then lived in Los Angeles for 27 years, but traveled every year around the world for several months. Lives in Beaujolais, where he continues to explore the visual world and poetry. Beaujolais is France? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I guess most of... Most of the time he was writing was while he was living in Los Angeles. Clayton Eshelman did this translation. In the, in the introduction, he says when he met him in Los Angeles the first time, he was the vice president of, of the TrueFlex Rubber Company. Wow. I don't really know how that happened. But uh, when Eshelman met him, that's what he was doing. And I guess they struck up a conversation, and it, none of his poetry had, had been published in America in any kind of way. Um, so Eshelman worked with him and I guess this was in the eighties and came up out with a, a little collection called, uh, sea urchin Harakiri, but I think it was a pretty small run. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know really what happened to it after that, but just recently black widow. Wait, what, when did Eshelman discover him? This is in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was sulfur still being printed at that point? Yeah, I don't know. I wonder. I wonder about that. Eshelman, let me just tell you, as soon as I hear he's translated someone, chances are it's good stuff. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, Yeah, no, the press is something weird. Panjandrum Press? I've never heard of that. I think I've noticed that here and there. Uh, I think it was kind of a smaller... But yeah, so I don't know, but Black Widow decided that they were were going to... uh, to do a con- collection. So this has that original collection that he did, and then he translated some newer poems as well uh, and put those put those on this collection. It's kind of like, it's certainly got a surrealist element, but in a dark kind of way. I think more like L'Autremont maybe than other kinds of surrealism is kind of the feeling I get from it. Uh, the funny thing is, actually mentions this in the, uh, in one of the little matters in here. Bador is a descendant of the Bathory family. Like, you know, Countess Bathory, who supposedly killed all the young women and would bathe in their blood. And and so Eshelman kind of says, well, his kind of, maybe this fascination with kind of the gory and the dark has has something to do with some genetic uh, predisposition to having something towards that. Um, Which is kind of interesting. Right. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's. I'm gonna read a couple of his poems here. So I'm gonna read one that's from that older collection, and then one that's a more recent one. Call of the Caverns. Taper menses an orgasm for the blue ants rescued from the abortive rutting. The evening when the moon hanged itself from snow-capped pussy sucker tongues. Inanely happy, like a pregnant cloud. The erect cyclops, his member loaded, blinds himself with the vaginal oil that furrows the alveol of worlds. In an intestinal pocket, the opium eater unfurls the sheet of crimson flowers onto the rock-like rumbling of rejects on the raft of the Medusa, abandoned to the paralytic calm of crepuscular spasms. A band of sea urchins, praying in a stone garden, penetrate the mystery of rods Killer earwigs lodged under skull moss, sepultures of mute musics. A Kleenex wipes the amplitude of waves, a royal crumple to dab out the eyes, honey extractors of chimeres weaned from traitor scorpions. A river becomes numb, malicious jelly of grocery witches sown at the four fears of the fair of all men. But the cockroaches, do they? Victims of defective strata ignore their executioners. A necklace of heads, pendulums of the torpor of subterranean transfusions where sumps throttle the light, 
the agony of a bison, tornado of entrails, and bellowings of stupefied hunters, has revealed the communion of engravings in the rock's grain. That was written in English? This, these are all written in French. Um, and Eshelman translated oh, yeah. it, yeah. Nice. yeah. So, so is he a Buddhist, or...? Um, no, why do you say that? I, I was just thinking, Not that pretty, I know of. pretty tantric. That's what came to my mind, you know, like the left, yeah. left-handed path, you know. Well, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Uh, and I thought on the cover I saw a monk of some kind. I just think that happens. That, this is one of his collages. This cover is one of the collages oh, yeah. that okay. he did. Okay. Um, and there's sure enough some sort of holy man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's not him, though. No. No. That's okay. one of the collages that he did. And I don't know. I've seen some of the... Uh, that's the only one that has any uh, Buddhist elements that I've seen. I mean, I'm not going to know, but like like, uh, like I said, I really... There's not a lot of information about him on his own website. And then, I, I mean, I gleaned a little bit from Eshelman's little introduction in here, but that's really all I know about him. Uh, nice. Nice. So I don't know. I'll just read one more, one more of his, and this I think is the, from the more recent. It reminds material. me of your work, Joseph. There's some elements. Yeah. I think. Uh, I think that's part of why. I like it. Sure. But I like I like how dark it is too, because I think right. a lot of times it's when more visceral than your stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I think a lot of times when people are doing work like this, that's kind of on that surrealist end now. It can be a little airy. Right. Well, uh, that's that's what I like about the Mexicans, you know, and, and yeah. the Negritude poets. You know, it was earthier. It was darker. It was uh, more lived, it seems, you know, like it was their birthright. They would yeah, say, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like like Frida Kahlo, you know, her painting or, or Paz or yeah. Um, Aimé Césaire, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's, that's the stuff. That's the stuff, you know, because the Surrealists, as great as they were, the Europeans would devolve into, you know, sheer intellectualism, you know. Um, yeah, if, if that's certainly a problem with some of it, and, and, yeah. and it happened. Uh, yeah. They certainly put out a lot of manifestos for such a short-lived <laughs> movement. Right. <laughs> And then it ended up political, you know. Yeah. And telling, yeah. telling the most surreal of them all, like he kind of belong at Artaud. Yeah. You know, I mean, he'd tell you the real revolution is within. Yeah. Well, and they kind of picked the wrong, uh, wrong horse there. I don't think they were too happy with all the how all the uh, communist stuff played out. No. All right. Well, here's here's a, one that's more recent. Universal speleology. Cathedrals engulfed under cobras allow the peppery will-o'-the-wisps to escape, ready to boogie under your eyelids. You'll find tarantulas weaving treacherous transparencies in which daredevil termites are heaped. Watch out for snapping trunkless heads. They're on a quest for decayed souls. With a sulfuric puff, the apprentice sorcerer in the garden of black flowers crystallizes the harmony in sacred cow dung while watching a hill of ants harvesting snow, a vital spice for that palace of egg layers. Oh, the princely dervish taste buds along the narrow crest of vaginal waves, whirlwind snatchers of surfer tongues, so many forgotten basilicas in the genitals of caverns. Drop down onto your back, mouth open, to receive from the stalactites, drip by drip, the thick menstrual loess inundating the planet of the frost-clawed bears. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I think it's really interesting stuff. It's hard to digest on just a listen, I know. Mm -hmm. But I definitely recommend checking it out. This is pretty easy to find since Black Widow uh, reissued it. You can get it from them pretty easily. They're in Boston, huh? Yeah, yeah. But that's not a Black Widow. That's not like the additions that I know with the black and the red. They stopped doing uh, that. They, oh, they've they stopped doing that now. That? Yeah, they were doing that. You're right. For a while, they all had the same it. covers. I liked it. 
They may still do it anytime you have a collected, I think, but I think that's all they use that for now. Maybe you have to be dead to get that. Well, I don't know, because all of Eshelman's own books from them don't have that either. Oh, right, They're right. all uh, right. various covers. Maybe it's for the, yeah, for the dead ones. And they have the bookshop here in town. Yeah, so... Still. Yeah, Crescent City carries all of their all of their works. Yeah, amen. Which is nice. All right, one more poet today, and this is kind of a, a different kind of thing. There's a, a bit of background for her. So this is uh, Amelia Rosselli, and she was basically kind of World War II era, era is the time we're talking about here, um, 1930 to 1996. She was kind of an interesting situation because she really kind of grew up with speaking Italian, French, and English. So she kind of has this, that's a big part of her poetry is kind of reconciling all these languages and the way she thinks of language in this sort of abstracted sense because of that. But her life, she had a bit of an, a bit of an interesting early life. Her father, Carlo Rosselli was part of the anti-fascist movements in Italy and was a writer and activist. He, he started a couple p- newspapers with other people that were anti-fascist newspapers. So, of course, he got in a lot of trouble for that. And he ultimately, I don't know how he managed to just get ex- exiled initially, but he and some, some of the other people involved with this were exiled from Italy. And the family moved to, uh, moved to France, but there was a French fascist militant group that assassinated him and... Uh, his brother when when Amelia was quite young so she kind of ended up not in front of her no she didn't see it happen but I mean yeah I mean she was pretty young so I'm sure that was a was a was a pretty formative event in her life and then her family really just had to move around because they were still persona non grata so they moved back and forth between Switzerland and France and England for a while but uh, once once the Nazis occupied Paris, they figured they better get out of there, and they took a boat to Montreal, and then ultimately settled in New York, in oh, in Larchmont, New York, kind of in Westchester County over there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and apparently there was some group of other anti-fascists that had ended up there is why I think they picked that. I don't think that there was any other particular appeal of Larchmont <laughs> Um, so I guess most of her childhood, she really ended up spending there in America, but Italian was still the language of the home. And then she moved back to Rome when she went in her 20s when she was older uh, and spent most of her time there. But yeah, a lot of poetry, I think she's really kind of pushing experimentation with language and trying to figure out how to reconcile this kind of living with three languages sort of thing. She did write poetry both in English and in Italian, and I'm going to read one of each. Uh, And she was kind of successful. She was sort of like on the fringes of the Neo-Avagardia Gruppo 63 Italian movement, but she was never fully in the midst of it. She was just kind of on the edges of it. I don't think she was someone who really got along with people that well. So, But they popped um, Paolo Pasolini wrote an introduction for her and published published her in one of the one of the big magazines at the time Manabo which was a was a big magazine for that movement and he said about her poetry it's dominated by something mechanical an emulsion that takes shape of its own accord possessed as one has the impression occurs in the most terrible laboratory experiments tumors atomic explosions <laughs> And then some of her English poetry, John Ashbery actually published in uh, his quarterly arts and literature when he was publishing that in Paris. So kind of two interesting uh, people to be introducing your work into the world in two different, uh, in the two different languages here. Um, and she had a pretty rough time in life. She had a lot of kind of psychological demons she was dealing with and went through a lot of Freudian and Jungian therapy on uh, had electro electroshock done to her and at one point they even tried to diagnose her with schizophrenia but she just kind of said no that's not uh, that's not the problem and just kind of refused the diagnosis and unfortunately she ended up 
committing suicide by jumping, jumping from a house, jumping from the window of a house. And, uh, which she was pretty old at that point when she was 66. Uh, but I think she just kind of had been struggling with a lot of those things her whole life. Unfortunately, it kind of cast a bad critical shadow on her work because she killed herself on the anniversary of Sylvia Plath's suicide. And she did admire Sylvia Plath and had translated some of her work into Italian, but it made people start drawing all these comparisons between her and Sylvia Plath that I don't think were really very valid. And then it also started coloring all her work as being about her suffering, which I don't think she was actually really anti-confessional. She, she thought there needed to be some separation between the personal self and what you're writing. I mean, so with I for her, when she does have I in her poems, which isn't that often, it's, it's more of a character. It's not really herself so much. Uh, and she always called herself a poet of research is how she referred to herself. Poeta della ricerca. Because she was, she saw herself more as trying to take all these different elements and pull them together rather than. than right. Well, I'm, I'm curious to hear something. Yeah, so I know anytime <laughs> I use a, a foreign phrase or word, you know, you worry about it. Like, how is that, you know, working? You know, is it pretentious? Is it alienating? Yeah, it's funny. And I think it can be sometimes. I, 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 there's a little bit of that in the ones I'm going to read. The ones that are really interesting in that regard, they're almost unreadable. And she did this series that's called, uh, I don't have to see what it's called. I don't remember what it's called, but she uses all three languages together intentionally. But it's almost unreadable because unless you knew Uh all three languages, it would be impossible. And even if you do, the way that they're jammed together. (laughs) Who published this? This is... University of Chicago, perhaps. Okay. So they chose not to, like, footnote anything? There's a pretty extensive introduction. Okay. Um, and there are... They don't really footnote things too much. I mean, they tell you where the things come from. And they do give you... In, I mean, there's some footnotes, I guess, but it doesn't tell you that much. Mm-hmm. It's not like they give you every single phrase. Right. Like, oh, well, let's, so I thought first I'd read one of the ones that was written in English and then... One of the ones that was written in Italian. So I think this one was actually, strangely enough, appeared in the Times Literary Supplement in 1966. But And I don't know why, because they titled it something something weird. I think they titled it Crimes or something in the supplement, but it's not titled in here. I don't think she intended it to be titled. She, The English poems were some of the stuff she wrote earliest. But they really weren't published till much later on, with that exception of this appearing in the in the literary supplement, because she just could never find a, an English language publisher. So normally they just title this with the first line: "What woke those tender, heavy, fat hands?" What woke those tender, heavy, fat hands? Said the executioner as the hatchet fell down upon their bodily stripped souls, fermenting in the dust. You are a stranger here and have no place among us. We would have you off our list of potent, able men, were it not that you've never belonged to it. Smell the cool, sweet fragrance of the incense burnt in honor of some secret soul gone off to enjoy an hour's agony with our saintly maker. Pray, be away, sang the hatchet as it cut slittingly purpled with blood. The earth is made nearly round and fuel is burnt every day of our lives. Well, so, patience to our souls. The seas run cold upon our bare necks shivered. We shall eat out of our bare hand, smiling vainly. The silver pot is snapped. We be snapped out of boredom in a jiffy run. Tentacles of passion run, rosewise, like flaming strands of opaque red lava. Our soul tears with passion, its chimney. The wind cries oof and goes off. We were left alone with our sister navel. Good, so we'll learn to ravish it alone. Words in their forge. This whole collection is Loco Matrix. Loco Matrix is the yeah. name. Loco Motrix, rather. Is oh, the name of the Motrix. Company. Yeah. Huh. So is that like Mo as a word? 
French mood tricks. I'm sure that was probably part of the thought too, yeah. In addition to the motion aspect, yeah, like word. So I think the English ones are maybe a little more traditional in some sense, although I don't know, can you even call that traditional? But I guess her poetry is kind of opaque in a way. It's hard to, the emotion is under the surface, which is, there's something interesting about that. I mean, I'm still trying to, I've only been reading her more recently. I'm still trying to figure out what I think of it in some ways, but I certainly find it intriguing. But let's do, so this is uh, one of the, this is an Italian one. So she kind of, I don't know why, she mostly doesn't title her poems. So this is some kind, this is from the 60s. It's from Da Variazioni Variations. But in me, mountains co-invened. In the cell of all solitudes, they prepared steaks and salads, richly seasoned. In the cell of pulchritudes, I awaited the order to depart mixed salad for time which slaughtered, but no order awaited out the portal of silent images. Shock to the nape broke violent within the portal, the climb to the mountain prepared the headlong descent, prohibit the sun to enter, the portal prohibited to open the ire, prohibited to satisfy itself outside the windows of the poor, prohibit tedium to distance itself, prohibit, in the castells of all beauties, an elderly sage was dying. Conditioned to a power seizure that wasn't my own, I entered the square and saw the sun burning, the women hacking grasses upon the square that blazed with malice, the militia, the sol fa mi do of all your battles. I kind of like her telling ones better personally, but... And this was translated by Jennifer Scapito. Oh, yeah, that's good. We didn't say that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... teaching at Chicago. Yeah, I was about to say, I think that's why it was University of Chicago Press. I think that was one of her projects. She, yeah, she's got a, a bilingual collection of poetry, too. Huh. Very nice, Jules. Well, okay. So that's six poets that maybe you haven't heard of, you know, I hope that one of those is intriguing to you and you go out and read a, read a poem you haven't read before. Uh, David, thank you for joining us today and uh, gracing us with some poetry. Sure. <laughs> and one last thing. If you enjoyed this episode, please go leave us a review on iTunes. It's really how we get new listeners and we would love it if you gave, gave us a review. Uh, and it would really help us out and spread the word. This has been the No Good Poetry Podcast. See you next week.